Boys, some Morgantown podcast. I'm Tyler Peppy. And I'm Brandon Cork, and this is a WVU sports podcast by two suffering WVU fans. All right. Please subscribe to our page on YouTube. It's the voice of Motown podcast. Share your thoughts on today's episode in the comment section. And for tonight, we're going to discuss spring football for the Mountaineers. WVU's tournament prayers seem to have been answered last night during Iowa State's game. Bob Huggins' future, and the NCAA finally handed down their first ruling on NIL infractions. So let's get right into it. With the spring game fastly approaching, how much stock do you put in to the blue and gold game? Like, And what's the number one thing you're looking for this year during the scrimmage? Yeah, so I think, uh, you know, starting with the, the latter question, what I would like to see most is how the quarterbacks perform, in particular, you know, getting a more extended look at Nico, um, you know, I, I still think there's a lot of unknowns about him and how his game that he played in high school is going to translate to the college game. You know, he definitely seemed like a gamer in high school, um, you know, have some ability. But how does that look against, um, you know, power five level athletes on WVU's team? So um, that's what I'm looking forward to the most. And in terms of how much weight I put into it. Um, I think after last year and even the year before that, um, you know, the weight that I'm putting into is going to be very little. I think it's going to be more about um, the defensive side of the ball where guys like Aubrey Burks really stood out in the defense in the spring game last year. And he had a tremendous year this past year on defense. So um, I think how the defense performs is really going to be telling to who might who the next breakout star might be for this fall. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Uh, I encourage all fans, don't put too much stock into this game. It, it's good to see guys taking snaps, but uh, kind of like what you've mentioned, we've seen countless number of examples of guys having a huge spring game and then not doing much else throughout this season. So, I mean, you can look at St. McLeod, even though his situation was kind of weird. Preston Fox, even Will Crowder, honestly, probably had the best spring game out of the quarterbacks and you know he barely saw the field so um yeah that's just something to keep in mind just like temper expectations but uh like you said i i am pretty excited to see what green and nico can do with their snaps not saying whoever has the best spring game is going to start but it, it's always fun just to get a little glimpse into how they might perform and uh, other than quarterbacks, since you picked that one, I'm, I'm looking at secondary because I, I still have a lot of concerns about how they're going to play this year. And it will be interesting to see how two ex inexperienced quarterbacks will play against a secondary that has a lot of question marks. Like, are they going to kind of cancel each other out? Is one side going to really emerge over the other? I think that matchup between quarterbacks and secondary will be the most appealing thing I'll be looking for. Oh, for sure. Yeah, that's definitely gonna be fun to watch. And, you know, it's gonna be interesting to see how much they let Green and Nico, you know, sling the ball um, instead of just running something that's a little bit more vanilla with a lot of short passes and, you know, quick runs, you know, things like that. Um, I want to see them, you know, see how far each of them can throw. I want to see what their arm strength is, is like throwing down the sideline, throwing out routes, things like that. You know, don't don't give away your secret sauce, but, you know, let the fans see what we're getting ourselves into is this going to be an offense where both quarterbacks um, past 15 yards can't make an accurate pass to save the life. Is there one guy who, you know, can consistently hit a 30, 40 yard shot downfield? Um, you know, are we going to be passing in the middle of the field or do we have a guy with enough arm strength to push it outside the hash marks? Um, 
there's a lot of questions about that because even with green, you know, we saw glimpses of things that he can do, but what can he do consistently? Um, I think that would provide a lot of peace of mind to fans, especially when I think most fans are looking at or are predicting a season that's six and six or worse. So um, whenever I would say probably 75, 80% of the fan base is, you know, at best expecting a, you know, maybe a bowl appearance. Um, I think you need to show something off to raise the spirits. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. You do kind of have to sell it to the fans. Plus, as you kind of said, it would be good to open up the passing game because we know this team can run the same offensive lines coming back for the most part. The halfbacks are coming back. So we know they have the ability to run. So let those young wide receivers and young quarterbacks um, get some good quality reps. But let's get into the games a little bit. Um Penn State, they they released the spreads to all the games just a few days ago, and the Penn State game was a huge spread. Is this a good thing or a bad thing for WVU? Because I believe Penn State was being given 18 points, if I remember correctly. And a half, I and, think. What is it? 18 and a half, I think. Yeah, that sounds right. 18 and a half. Now, you could say the experts are predicting that WVU is going to absolutely get thumped, or you could argue that WVU traditionally thrives um, most when they are being counted out, when they are the underdogs. So which side of the fence are you leaning towards after seeing that spread? Because typically college football games, you don't see an 18-point spread very often. I think it's expected. Um you know, I wasn't super surprised. I, I was definitely expecting a, a double digit spread there just because, I mean, Penn State was a top 10 team in the country at times last year. And, you know, they recruit well. They have good coaches. Um, and WVU just has a lot of question marks. I mean, you're coming in with um, either A, a quarterback who started, you know, one and a half, two games and B or B, a quarterback who has started no games. So, um you know, what What do you do with that if you're Vegas? And then on top of that, with the defense that we had last year and really not bringing in a lot of talent um, outside of one or two guys to bolster that secondary, you know, what does that show? What does that mean for the team and how do you replace that? And, you know, thirdly, losing our best defensive player in Dante Stills, you know, how does that impact our defensive line, which was our strength last year? So, you know, from a Vegas point of view, I think, you know, it's the right call. It's the safe bet because, you know, I think that's something that's potentially easy to cover depending off on if Neil Brown goes out there and, you know, spend, spends all summer building a game plan to keep it close, which I think we all know he's capable of. Um, but, you know, it'll be interesting to see how that shifts over time. I definitely think it will go down a little bit. You know, I could probably see it maybe in the, you know, 14 and a half range or something like that. I still think it's going to stay around two scores, but um, you know, this could either be a blowout or it could be one of those games kind of like how Neil Brown played against Oklahoma a couple years ago where, you know, it was a field goal game. So um, Neil Brown knows how to play close games, um, but WVU on the road is also prone to getting blown out. So wasn't super shocking to me, um, but I can definitely see the case for why some people might expect it to be a little bit closer. Yeah, 100%. I mean, like you said, Penn State is predicted to be ranked in the top 10 to start the year, and most people are predicting this a loss for WVU. It's also important to keep in mind, these are early Vegas odds, and Vegas wants you to start putting money on games now so that you're locked in. And with these early spreads, you can only put so much money on the games. And so they know they're not going to lose their shirt in Vegas by throwing these spreads out. These are just to get people 
kind of chomping at the bit to start placing money down. So I think you're right. The line will get a little closer to WVU um, as the game approaches. So um, I'm not putting too much stock into it. If you look at WVU, though, they have the third toughest schedule in the entire country right now. Um, as of now, wow. uh, the rankings I'm looking at and the toughest in the Big 12. And we're the only Big 12 team playing two Power 5 teams in their non-conference schedule. So um, it's good to keep all that in mind, too. We do kind of have our backs up against the wall heading into this year. But um, on the flip side, if you looked at the pit spread, the experts have the backyard brawl as a toss-up game because the line opened up with WVU at minus one. And the last time I looked, it flipped to pit at minus one. So it's a, you know, it's essentially a, a toss up. And, and like I said, they're just moving these lines a little just to get people wanting to place early money down. But um, does this make you feel better or worse about the game for the same reasons that we mentioned at Penn State? Is it good that people think it's a toss up or is it concerning that WVU isn't favored more since they're at home? I think it's fair just because, you know, there's a lot of question marks marks about Pitt, too. I mean, they've lost a lot of talent on their team from last year. Um, you know, their their star running back, a couple key pieces on the defensive line. Um, so how are they going to replace them? And, you know, I think how WV performs week one and how Pitt performs in their first game is really going to determine how that line shifts one way or the other. Um, I think the safe bet is to expect that you know, WVU wins at home because WVU, you know, Mountaineer Field is a tough place to play. It's a rivalry game. People are going to show up. It's going to be a wild atmosphere. And I think the players are going to show up for it. Um, so, you know, I, I personally, I do think that WVU should probably be favored, even if it's, you know, by a half a point. Um, just because I think that Mountaineer Field, you know, as a venue, you know, I, I definitely think that's worth three or four points on WVU's side. So, um, you know, is this a game where Pitt is three points better than WVU? I'm not sure. I mean, I think that Pitt has a better coach. Um, I think they probably recruit a little bit better. Um, you know, and I think they have a little bit more sturdy foundation to build off of and build up um, from where they were last year compared to WVU. So, um, but playing in Morgantown, I mean, we've seen it time and time again. Um, the Mountaineers show up when we're at home. So, um, I definitely think WVU should be pay, favored for it, but I think a, a toss-up is probably right about the right spot for this point in time. Yeah, I'm with you. And, you know, my, most experts are predicting this to be kind of a 50-50 game. And uh, even if you would argue that WVU has more question marks than Pitt, like you keep saying, WVU's at home. And so that does kind of make it an even playing field, I think. So I think this game being a toss-up is pretty fair. Um, because although I am favoring WVU, not being a homer, I just honestly think that home field advantage does slightly give them an edge. Um, I, you know, I, I think a one point spreads more than fair there. Oh, absolutely. All right, guys, switching gears a little bit, going into basketball. Um, I, the WVU beat Iowa state last night and that was a huge win for them. And so there's only one game left. And that brings up the question is Saturday versus Kansas state a must-win game for WVU, and in my opinion, they're they're probably in the NCAA tournament no matter what after that big win at Iowa State. Um, a win Saturday would just put icing on the cake for a tournament berth. They are 19th in the Ken Palm ratings as of Tuesday morning. They're 23rd in the net. The Mountaineers have five quad one wins. So yeah, a win 
Saturday would be nice, but uh, it, it's not necessary. Do you agree with that? I don't think it's necessary. I do think that if you want to avoid that, you'd be guaranteed to avoid that. Um, what do you ever call it? Your, the play in round. Um, the first round, I guess, as they call it, which I don't consider it the first round because that it's not the first round. There's you know four games, um, but or two games. But if we want to avoid that, uh, I think we have to win. Um, you know, I think even if we lose and lose close, there's a chance that we avoid that. But I think to be guaranteed to not play in that play in round where anything can happen, and it's it, frankly, I mean, you know, we've seen teams who are really good play in those games and end up making a little bit of a tournament run. So. Um, you know, it's not a guarantee that you're going to match up against someone that WVU can beat in that round, regardless if they're a big 12 team or not. So, um, I'd really, really, really like to see them win it just so we can avoid that situation. Cause I'd rather get that extra day or two to prepare for someone that we know we're going to play right off the, right out of the gate. Um, rather than have to prepare for that play in game. Yeah, I'm with you. Um, I th I think as long as K State doesn't blow out WVU at home, which doesn't really happen in the Coliseum, um, I, I think it's all gravy. I think they're going to get in pretty easily. But I would love to get that win against Kansas State because, I mean, like we just mentioned, Ken Palm, the Net, it all loves WVU, and if you can beat a high-ranked K State team, um, that's just going to give you a better seating in the tournament which i think would uh be a huge advantage for wvu to get good matchups so um i'm with you there and uh since the big 12 tournament's coming up we'll take a deeper dive in another episode but uh just a quick prediction do you think they'll make any noise in the big 12 tournament because sure they're gonna have a decent chance of beating a low level team in that first game like Texas Tech, Oklahoma, whoever it ends up being. But in their second game, more than likely, they're going to have Kansas or Baylor. Um, do they have the talent to get maybe to a conference finals and, and really go in with some momentum into the NCAA tournament? So I think it depends on where we land. Um, if we stick in that, what is it, 9-10 spot or was it 8-9 spot? I forget how the matchups work in that first round. Yeah, 7-10 um, and 8-9, I believe. 7 and – or sorry, yeah. Yeah, I think that's something like that. But, uh, you know, the lowest seed's going to play Kansas. Yeah. So if we can avoid having to play Kansas in the next round, I think we can beat Baylor. I mean, I know Baylor's really good. But I think the one thing that we match up against well with Baylor is that we can still go small. We also have some, you know, well, speaking after all the injuries that we had last week, I don't know if we have the big men right now to, you know, punish them for going small. But um, we do have, I mean, the, the team looked really good last night with Emmett Matthews at center. And I even sent a message to you and Brad during the game that Emmett Matthews is a better center than Jimmy Bell. And I was only half joking, but I mean, you know, it, having Emmett Matthews go out there and, you know, play that for some period of time, he can't do it a whole game because you could tell he was exhausted from doing that. His body's not really built for it, but you know, you have Trey Mitchell playing some center. You could spell him with Emmett Matthews and just kind of go ultra offensive, you know, chaos on defense. Um, you know, I, I think that matches up well with Baylor. I mean, you know, <laughs> they play three guards and then Jalen Bridges, and then they have one of their athletic big men underneath. So um, I, I could see us giving Baylor trouble and pulling off a win. I mean, we haven't, we played Baylor pretty well when we played them this year. Um, so um, yeah, I definitely don't see it as a team that's unbeatable to me, but Kansas, I think is really tough. I think Kansas just has 
a lot of really good players that pose problems for WVU because of their athleticism and skill. Yeah, and it seems like WVU needs to play a team that goes cold for them to really finish off a game like we saw against Iowa State. And Kansas simply just doesn't go cold late in the second half. I mean, it's just incredible to watch them year after year have guys who can just make shots. Um, And so, yeah, I'm with you there. Um, Emmett Matthews was playing well in center at the end of that Iowa State game, but Jimmy Bell did have his moments. He was snagging a lot of offensive rebounds. Um, maybe not towards the end of the game, but you know, early on, which did help WVU gain that lead. So I'll give him a little bit of love, even though there are times he makes you want to pull your hair out. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, I was looking, you know, kind of looking ahead since, you know, I think we're in consensus that we're going to make the tournament. Um, so, um, you mentioned Ken Palm and net and things like that. My favorite basketball analytics site is Bart Torvik, uh, B-A-R-T E-O-R-V-I-K. Um, fantastic website for anyone who's listening and hasn't checked it out. There's stats for days that you can get lost in. So I just want to give them a shout out, but they have this, uh, a couple cool tools on there where you can look at, um, tournament profiles of teams and see historically over the past 15 years or so teams that, um, are similar to the team based on offensive rating, defensive rating, net rating, strength of schedule, things like that. So, um, I did some digging on that today. And starting off with just looking at the resumes of teams. Um, so this is based off of the uh, school's resume. So that would be like their wins, losses, quad one, quad two, wins, all that other stuff. Their net ratings, um, a couple proprietary formulas they use to rank teams, um, you know, strength as a team. Um, and it brought back uh, the top We'll just go through the top three. The top three teams that are most comparable to WVU this year are Ohio State last year, um, which was a seven seed, Louisville from 2019, which was a seven seed, and LSU from 2022, which was a six seed. Now, those sounds like good. Those sounds like good schools, but unfortunately, those three schools, um, two of them had a first round exit. They didn't make it past the initial round. Ohio State last year made it out of the first round, but lost in the round of 32. So that wasn't super promising based on where WVU stands. But they also have another tool where you can look at offensive and defensive rating um, and look at teams compared to each other over time, over that same period of time. And um, so WVU this year, their top three, or we'll do top four because top four sounds a little bit better um, for this exercise anyway. The top four, comparable teams are Seton Hall of 2018 um, who was an eight seed who made it to the second round of the NCAA tournament Kansas State in 2010 who was a two seed which is interesting um, and made it to the elite eight West Virginia from two years ago um, or 2021 who was a three seed that was the team with uh, Deuce McBride made it to the second round and then Baylor in 2012 who was a three seed and made it to the elite eight so um, two of the top four most comparable teams in terms of adjusted offensive um, efficiency, adjusted defensive efficiency, and adjusted tempo made it to the Elite Eight, um, which I thought was really interesting. So um, I don't mean to give people false hope, but you know, if we get into the tournament and we get some good matchups, this is a team that could go pretty far. Yeah, and really that's what it's all about is getting decent matchups. Um, 
And of course, just making the tournament, anything could happen. And I'm always keeping that in the back of my head. The only thing that makes me a bit of a pessimist is since conference play has started, WVU hasn't really strung along a, a winning streak. I mean, at the most, they'll win like two games in a row and then and then they lay an egg, which which makes me a little worried that they haven't been able to string along like two, three consecutive excellently excellently played games they always like seem to get blown out at once the fans are uh you know riding that wave yeah definitely and going into conference play too um i also looked at some stats based on west virginia on uh performed so far in big 12 play so obviously you know the player who's probably the most valuable who's done the best on the team so far is Eric Stevenson, and he has the highest player ranking per Bart Tovic. But if you had to guess uh, the number two and number three players, who would you say the next two would be in terms of impact on the team? Is this just conference play or for the entire year? Conference play. I would say uh, Joey Toots is up there, if I had to guess. He's four. He's four. Okay, I was close. Uh... I want to say Trey Mitchell, but man, he's been, he just disappears some games, but I'll go with Trey Mitchell. Mitchell is he he's up there? five. He's five. Okay. Yeah. Um, Keedy's got to be up there. Yep. Keedy's two. Okay. So who is three? Um, something's making me say it's not Emmett Matthews, but I can't think of anyone else it would be. It's Emmett Matthews. Okay, um, I was going to say, no one else really gets a ton of playing time other than everyone I just mentioned. Yeah, and, and that kind of surprised me because I feel like a lot of people have been down on Emmett Matthews during conference play because his scoring has been down. You know, he hasn't been as impactful as he was in non-conference play. But, you know, based on, you know, the numbers that I'm looking at here, he actually has, um, you know, the highest player rating, rank, rating. And, you know, that's because his offensive ratings is, good when he's on the court on offense the offense is better now the reason that he doesn't look so good on offense when he's out there is because his usage rating is low and he only has a 17 percent usage rating which means that a possession ends with him scoring or having the primary assist on that bucket um so he's not really a vessel that the offense running through to score but he's contributing in other ways to the offense being successful um, which I think we can definitely see with the way he moves the ball with his screens, um, with the secondary assists, um, rebounding, things like that. The, the things that the non-counting stats, um, which I thought was interesting. Uh, and then the other thing that stood out to me um, was the player who has the highest um, or the top, yeah, the highest field goal percentage in close two point range is James Oconquo right now. He's shooting... Uh, close to 77% on close twos. Um, he's also two for two on dunks. The second highest is Emmett Matthews as well. So he's um, been one of the better inside scores as well for WVU. But I think it just goes to show how impactful Okonkwo is um, on this team. And it's really interesting too. I can actually, you know, since we're recording video, I could probably actually just share the screen here to show these stats because they're really nice. And there's lots of green, which I like. And so he's I'm a guy share. I thought would get some more playing time yesterday, but um, 
you know, you didn't see him much out there. Yeah. I, well, he got hurt early on. He twisted his ankle, but, um, you know, for a conku here, I mean, if you look at his true shooting percentage, he's at 63% offensive rebounding rate, defensive rebounding rate, all these green across the board, his free throw rate, his block rate is the highest on the team. Um, you know, I, and I think whenever everyone's talking about, you know, James Okonkwo versus J Jimmy Bell and Muhammad Wa or Wagi, you know, Wagi's definitely been good as well. But I mean, the impact that Okonkwo has in just conference play, which is really when he started getting his minutes. I mean, even if you look at his offensive rating, um, it's the highest on the team for anyone who's played 25% of the minutes or more. Um, he's nearly at 120. The next is Josiah Harris, who's only played 4% of minutes. But um, you know, he's just, he's just really, really good. And I'm really hoping that that ankle injury isn't serious because I would love to have him back for the conference tournament for the, uh, NCAA tournament, because I mean, I feel like he's someone whose role could grow even more. And he's one of those players, like, you know, I don't want to say Joe Alexander, um, from years of old, but someone who could have that type of breakout coming in the second half of the season, um, offensively, he's super efficient. He's the most athletic big that we have. And defensively, I mean, he just shows flashes of being an absolute dynamic rim protector like uh, Kanate was. So I'm super excited for him, and I hope we have him back. Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, he's definitely got the athletic ability. We've seen that with the highlight reel blocks and dunks. And um, also, though, with Waggy being out, I'm pretty sure indefinitely with an injury as well. Um, if we're missing both those guys, that's really going to hurt us with depth. And you definitely need depth in the tournament. So um, hopefully we see him back out there Saturday. Yeah, I don't know how we replace that. I mean, I guess you're playing trade Mitchell at center. You're playing Emmett Matthews at center. Some, um, we saw Joe, Josiah Harris play a little bit in the, at the end of the Iowa state game. Um, other than that, I mean, man, I mean, Sumanik, I guess maybe could play a little bit longer, but I like Pat Subnick, but they don't give him that. They haven't given him enough minutes to make me feel comfortable with him playing in like an NCAA tournament game. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm the same there. I mean, I, I like the way he hustles, but I don't know if he's athletic enough to, you know, rebound efficiently, to defend the low block consistently, to make layups consistently. Um, I just I just don't know what he is. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. And that's a guy I'm excited for next year. But like I said, you know. During crunch time in some of these later games, I don't know if that's the person I want to see out there, you know, in a two-point game with two minutes left. Yeah, same here. All right, you got anything else for the tournament? No, um, I'm just, you know, honestly just excited to have the opportunity to potentially be playing an NCAA tournament again. I mean, it just makes it more fun. So I'm really hoping that we don't get shafted because, I mean, there's always that team or two every year who out of nowhere – uh, the NCAA tournaments just they, they just keep them out for no one knows what reason. So I hope we're not that team this year. I know, I'm with you, man. But uh, every everything that keeps track of all these analytics seems to love us. So I, I think 
I think they're in. Uh, which yeah. brings us to our next topic. Bob Huggins has had a rough couple of seasons. Some people argue the game has passed him by. Some argue that he's a Hall of Fame coach who is still trying to figure out NIL in the transfer portal, which is fair. Um, they'll think he'll eventually figure it out. So the question is, where do you fall on this debate? Do you think it's time for Coach Huggins to retire? Or do you think uh, he just needs another year or so? And we're going to see some of those teams like the Javon Carters and Deuce McBride teams. That's tough. Um, you know, I, I like the changes that Huggins has made this year. I, I think it shows that. He's understanding the advantage of using the portal. Um, I think he's understanding also that, you know, it's okay to, you know, I, I feel like he was overcorrecting over the past several years where teams were just investing heavily on shooting. So he just felt like he needed to get shooters in there and try to teach them to become defensive players. And it didn't work out. I mean, as much as I love guys like Taz Sherman and Sean McNeil, those just weren't Bob Huggins players. I mean, we just had to win shootouts and Bob Huggins, you know, he just can't coach that way. Um, and this year, I think, you know, we're getting some more better two-way players. Um, we still have the offensive scoring at the guard spot, but um, they're better defensively than we've had in years past. So I feel like he's making the right changes. Now, if I had to, you know, guess what he was going to do, um, I think it depends on how we do this year. I mean, I think, you know, if we go into the tournament and, you know, go on a run, I could see him potentially retiring, maybe, you know, ending on top because we have a lot of seniors, um, you know, or if we just go in there and we get beat by a really good team, I could see him coming back and just running back with what he has. Um, personally, I, I would like to see him come back for at least another year and get someone on staff that, you know, I would feel confident with and WVU fans would feel confident with as someone to step up to replace Huggins. Um, obviously you can always go and hire someone outside of shop um, after Huggins leaves. But I feel like with Bob Huggins, I mean, he could coach another year. He could coach another five years and I'd be okay with either one. Um, but the best situation would be is for him to groom someone underneath of him to take over after he's gone. And after two or three years, if that doesn't work out, then, you know, you can, look somewhere else then but you know honestly i'd rather have someone learn under huggins you know embrace the university and you know just kind of have a nice quick clean handover to someone that huggins trust and the university can trust um rather than just huggins retiring because it's hard sure Sure, I'm with you there. And of course, the easy name to throw out there is uh, Darius Nichols, who's actually having some success at Radford where he's coaching. Um, but yeah, I mean, I totally get that. A lot of fans would be on board for that. You wouldn't have to worry about someone buying into West Virginia and our traditions. They would already know that. So that would be one check in their column automatically. Um, if you're asking me, I'm willing to give them you know, at least one more season. I'm kind of with your mindset. I could watch him coach one more. I could watch him coach three, four more, and I'd probably be okay with no matter what the answer is there. Um, here's what I say. The team did slightly improve this year, and a lot of guys actually have the option to return next season. I, I know there's a lot of seniors, but there's I believe there's only like two, maybe three at the most who have to graduate. Now, that doesn't mean they'll all come back. 
we've seen that even like on the football side where Sam James technically could have came back, but he was a senior and, you know, he, he's going to try out the NFL. Um, so I think that'll be a big part of it too. Who's coming back? Who's leaving? Is he going to have to replace the entire roster again? Um, so I don't know. Um, I think there's a lot of question marks. I'm not even sure if he knows what he wants to do yet. I will say, I think he is kind of trying to, he, he's starting to figure it out a little bit. Like you said, he tried getting shooters in there and it just wasn't a brand of basketball we were used to seeing. It wasn't a brand of basketball. Bob Huggins knows how to coach. And you're seeing this team with like Joe Troussant, Keedy Johnson, who played just tough defense, get steals. Um, even a guy like, uh, Eric Stevenson, who is a shooter, he still plays that like gritty fiery style can get steals that we're used to seeing. And so I do feel like he's figuring it out a little bit where he can get guys in there who can score, but also play that tough nose defense, which we just didn't see at all last year. you know, our defense was God awful and the nights that they went cold, they just had no chance of even being in the game. So um, I'm with you. I would be fine if he walks away. But at the same time, I'm willing to give him another year or two and see if he can figure out this new college sports. Yeah. And a couple other things, too. You know, it's not like even with the, you know, what, three or four guys who are have to leave after this year, like the cupboard's bare. I mean, I I feel like we have a lot more um, guys that aren't playing a lot right now or are playing some in a, a smaller capacity that are going to be really good for us next year. I mean, Seth Wilson has been great. He's just stuck behind Eric Stevenson. I mean, Kobe Johnson, um, he's been a great defender, and Huggins has praised him for that, and I think he could be someone who you plug into the the backcourt as someone as a defensive stopper, and he figures out his offensive game later. And you have to remember that Kobe was, the I think, the all-time leading scorer at his high school, so he knows how to score the ball. It's just you got to break through that wall and figure out what's going on there. Um and then James Okonkwo, obviously, we just talked about him for a while, but he's someone who's going to be good. And then Josiah Harris, who's a true freshman, and he's logging in minutes, you know, here and there. But he's someone who's supposed to be really good in the long term, someone with a more of a defensive background with the ability to get better on offense. I think of the guys that could come back that probably won't. Um, I look at someone like a Jamel King, um, who didn't play at all last year, really hasn't played at all this year. Um, a lot of people say he's the best shooter on the team, but I think it's just a, a leftover from when Huggins was trying to overcorrect for the fact that everyone else has shooters and he really didn't. And, um, I, I think he's someone who could end up going, um, out after that. The, the second piece too, is ever since we hired DeMar Johnson, um, the offenses look better. I mean, I know the sets that we were running against Iowa state, people were moving around. Um, there's a lot of skip passes. There's a lot of moving the ball inside, outside. You know, it, it looked a lot more modern than what we were running 10 games ago. So um, I definitely think we've seen improvements on that front as well. And if you look at the metrics, WVU is one of the top offensive teams in the conference. So um, the defense has been hasn't necessarily been something that's winning us games, but we've been better defensively than we have in years past. So I think like like, like we've just said, he, he's he's figuring it out. Um, and, you know, the numbers back that up. So. Uh, I'm all for him staying for another multiple years, like we just said, because, you know, I think that it was a big transition period over the past few years over what happened. And I also, I think um, Deuce McBride leaving, I mean, that hurt. I, I don't think Huggins expected 
when he recruited Deuce McBride as a three-star out of Cincinnati for him to leave after two years. Um, so, I mean, I mean, technically Deuce could still be playing for the Mountaineers right now and imagine what he would look like and what this team would look like with him as a senior on this team. It'd be, um, we probably have five more wins, but I digress on that point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. And you make a good point about DeMar Johnson. I mean, I, I haven't even really thought of that, but you're right. I mean, the offense has looked different in a good way since he has been added to the staff. So uh, we've been calling for hugs to add young, fresh minds for years, and maybe he finally did that. And with bringing in Ruoff, I mean, I like that too because he's played overseas. He's He's got fresh ideas too that he can contribute. So um, I do like the way that things are trending. Now, uh, Brad Smith was supposed to be on with us tonight, and this question was specifically – for him, because he's been calling for this, but we'll talk about it anyways. Um, should WVU consider bringing Chris Beard in as Bob Huggins' successor? I have a feeling you and me are gonna not share the same opinion on this. What? What? I'll I'll let you go first. I'd be for it. I mean, honestly, I think he's a really good coach, and you know, obviously, I don't, I don't like um, the allegations that he had um up they were dropped and you know maybe it was just a, a marital scuffle or whatever you want to call it um you know those things can be corrected he can take actions to improve that and obviously if it doesn't happen again then you don't worry about that but in terms of you know outside the personal side of him um as a basketball coach i mean he's he's top tier you know he's probably one of the best 20 coaches in the game and i would love to have him here you know the only red flag for me in that aspect is that he was at Texas tech. He was building up a program there and it looked really promising. And he went to Texas. Um, if he gets the, if he would replace Huggins and he would have, you know, a 25 win season, then like a 24 win season. Is there any way that we keep him? And then are we just left grasping at straws after that? Um, I'm not sure. And that would be my only concern, but you know, would it be worth it if we make a final four with beard here for five years? Maybe, you know, so that that's kind of my only, um, pause with bringing him on as a successor. Yeah. I mean, personally, I think it would be a PR nightmare. <laughs> um, I've, I've seen his name rumored for the old miss head coaching job. Um, so his name is out there already since these charges are being dropped now granted those are rumors i don't know if there's really any truth to it but i i think it's a bad idea to hire him immediately i mean that incident just happened a couple months ago again the charges were dropped but the details of that incident were horrific for anyone who read it um, you know, it wasn't just a little brush up. The stuff I read sounded awful. And I think it would be wise for programs to at least let the incident breathe for a bit. Like I said, it's still very fresh. It just happened. Um, maybe more details will emerge to change the public image of Chris Beard. Um, we've seen incidents in the past where, um, you know, people were labeled women beaters and then it turned out maybe that wasn't the case i mean the one that comes to mind is like the heather heard whatever her name was and johnny depp and yeah. and there's even been coaches situations where that happened so uh maybe something will change my opinion about him down the line but as of right now the man is known as a woman beater and that's not a label i would really want for my school to hire 
And uh, you also brought up a great point. I mean, even if he comes here and has one or two seasons, he's definitely going to bolt. He's not going to be a lifer. I mean, look at what he had at Texas Tech. He had a good team. He probably could have brought in great made the finals. Yeah, made the finals. Probably could have kept getting in good players. They're in Texas. They have a track history of success. I mean, I, I kind of thought that was a little weird when he did leave. So um, for all those reasons – I would probably stare clear of that. Now, I have a counter argument for you. Let's hear it. So, hear me out. Whenever the American government <clears throat> wanted to hide from Russian nukes, where did they put their bunker? In Greenbrier, West Virginia. <laughs> That's right. So, where's the best place to hide from the Twitter mob? West Virginia. <laughs> Morgantown, West Virginia. <laughs> there might be some holes in that theory, but I like that you threw it out there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I wish Brad was on because I know he's way more passionate about that question than either of us. Um, and, and I would have loved to hear his comments. But, uh, you know, it's, it's worth discussing. We're always open to all topics. But this next one I thought was very interesting. The NCAA handed out its first ever NIL ruling. It was Haley and Hannah Cavender, the twins who played at Freshman State last season, but then transferred to the Miami Hurricanes in the offseason. And these twins have a huge social media following. They have over 4 million followers. However, before this past season even started, Miami's head coach was suspended for three games for a level two violation of the NCAA rules. Supposedly, she organized a meeting between the Cavender twins and a school donor while they were still in the transfer portal. They weren't even Miami players yet. And they were caught because the dope donor posted a photo of the meeting online providing clear-cut evidence of the violation. And from what I read, that's even what brought attention to the NCAA of this violation. Um, so... Uh, if, if you're not familiar with this situation, you might be asking, well, what was the ruling? What was the punishment? Miami now has to serve a one-year probation term. They have to pay a $5,000 fine. They have reduced visits and in-person recruiting days, and they can't talk to potential transfers for the first three weeks of the portal period. Um, to me, this was big news because it kind of sets the standards for future punishment, you would think. I mean, who knows what the NCAA, they kind of just do what they want. Um, and I'm not trying to say this whole thing was okay. Obviously, this was a violation. But with all this stuff the Miami football team does and is accused of, they decide to crack down on girls basketball. This, this was kind of a joke to me. I don't know how you felt about all this news. Yeah, this is like the biggest slap in the face to people who want NIL regulations, for one. For two, it's also a huge slap in the face to the NCAA, who's really adamant about, you know, enforcing Title IX, which is a federal requirement, but also, you know, the, the embracing women's sports and raising them up in profile. I mean, that's one way that women can offset the fact that they don't make as much money as women, which, you know, I'm... You know, I don't think that WNBA players should make as much as NBA players just because the revenue doesn't work out that way. But it's a way that they can offset that. I mean, you get social media influencers and, you know, you get relationships with different, you know, rich people who can go out there and, you know, give you endorsement deals and things like that. And by 
you know, basically telling these female athletes that, hey, you have to be careful whenever you have, you know, these players in Alabama driving around Lamborghinis, you know, what type of message is that sending? It's just completely baffling that, you know, because ESPN's putting money in the pockets of, you know, whoever is coach at Miami or whoever, and, you know, all these other big blue blood programs um, that they're immune from it just because that ESPN doesn't want to show women's college basketball at, you know, seven 30 on a Friday night, <clears throat> you know, it just, it just doesn't make any sense. It's a complete crock of crap and it, it's, they, they need to make a, an example with one of the big, two sports in order to show that they're serious about it. I'm with you. I mean, like I said, obviously what the girls did, what that donor did was a violation, but the fact that they've let everything slide prior to this, uh, you know, the whole, it kind of made me roll my eyes that this is what they're saying. Hey, we're cracking down. You can't do that. But the other thing was that, um, that I thought was interesting is the NCAA specifically said they don't want to punish players. And so the girls aren't suspended at all. Just the coaches. I don't know if there's any type of punishment for the donor that if he's not allowed to be, I don't around you know players anymore. I didn't see anything punishment for the donor. I don't even know if NCAA could do that. I don't know how the rules work there, but um, I thought that was interesting because although, you know, for girls basketball, I don't think they're in the tournament yet. It probably wouldn't have mattered if they would have suspended them one or two games. What if this was college football and, you know, a big rivalry games coming up that could decide who goes to the playoff and then they don't suspend the player and maybe they just suspend a coach for a couple games that I mean. I think that that's why this is such big news. This is kind of setting the standard of what they'll do in the future. And, you know, what I just laid out, if that's what they do in the future, I don't know if that's really stopping people from violating this rule. I mean, a $5,000 fine for Miami, like that's, that's like five bucks out of my wallet compared yeah. to the money they have. I mean, that's nothing. Um, one year probation. Yeah. That kind of hurts, but it's one year, a couple reduced visits. Uh, to me, this is pretty light. I don't know about you. Yeah, that is really light. And I don't definitely don't think the players should be punished for it um, because, I mean, the players, that's the whole point of NIL. It's to empower the players and give them opportunity to make money, um, which they weren't making before. Um, I definitely think it has to be coach suspensions. It has to be coach suspensions. It has to be, you know, maybe the NCAA gets to embed a, you know, overseer in your athletic department and they get access to wherever the heck they want for 18 months and you have to pay that person's salary. Like that's something that's probably better. Um, and then you can throw that year probation on it too. And then that observer could act as the probation officer to make sure everything's running smoothly. Um, that would be something that's a little bit more workable, but you know, I also think that there's, you know, a lot of loopholes with it because, you know, that the issue is, is that these colleges are basically kind of acting as a mediator between the money that's coming from the rich people to the players, and they can't be doing that. Um, and I'm not exactly sure how you mediate that, you know, because, you know, if you're walking down, we'll say Morgantown, for example, walking down High Street, and you run into Ken Kendricks, which that would never happen. But let's say you do and say, hey, we got Nico Marchio who's coming to campus and we want you to make sure that he comes here. So 
how do you monitor situations like that? And I think that's the the issue that um, we run into. And how do you police that? And what's a fair punishment for something that you can't police other than through, you know, he said, she said, or tertiary information that you're gathering just through making assumptions? Um, I don't know. Um, and, and the one thing that I did like the idea of, and I'm not exactly sure how this would work, is like if you could implement some sort of salary cap for what you can offer students in NIL and just say, hey, as a school, if you want to be the mediator between this, that's fine. But you need to report every dollar that's spent and there's a cap. Um, I think that's something that's a little bit more workable. But again, I don't know how you work around that, um, how you build that out and how you make sure it's enforced. I mean, I think it's a huge can of worms that the NCAA isn't really equipped to deal with and they don't know how to deal with. Yeah, I don't know how you monitor that either because technically the school's not supposed to be involved in it. So how could they report the amount when technically they're supposed to be hands off? You know, it, it's just a weird, weird situation, this NIL. And I just wish, obviously I'm happy for the players, but I just wish there was more guidelines. I wish it was more black and white. Like, here's what you can do. Here's what you can't do. And if you're on the can't do side, here's your punishment. It's just all of it is so gray that, like you said, it's just hard to police because there is so many gray areas. Yeah, I think you just do it the way that you handle the mafia. Like you make it taxable income. You make them employees. You have to report it to the IRS. If you don't report their income to the IRS and that's tax fraud, and then you're in a whole other can can of worms. I mean, make it. (laughs) higher stakes for these um, administrators who are dealing with this situation. Um, That's one thing that rich people don't like is going to jail and having to pay their taxes. So maybe that's the way you do it. The Capone method. (laughs) (laughs) The old Al Capone. Um, Yeah. All right, man. Well, that's all I got. Uh, You got anything else to add before we wrap up? No, that was all I had. Um, I, I hope everyone enjoyed listening and, uh, Really looking forward to the Big 12 tournament and uh, March Madness. For sure. Yeah, thanks for listening, guys. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Again, it's the Voice of Motown podcast. And yeah, we got March Madness coming up. The spring game will be here before you know it. So lots of fun topics to talk about. So join us next time you see a new episode drop. And thanks, guys. We'll catch you next time. Thanks, everyone.